Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. The geologic timetable is much more than a catalog of rocks and layers of sediment. It's a record of the history of life on Earth. Scientists have uncovered countless mind-bending moments, like when bacteria first began to breathe out oxygen, when ocean-dwelling creatures developed the ability to see and when animals crawled out onto land. But to this day, the most important moment remains the biggest question mark. How did life start on Earth? Scientists do not have a definitive answer to this question. And one of the reasons it's so hard to answer is that we humans only know one example of life in the universe, and that's here on Earth. We don't have anything else to compare it to, at least not yet. Many scientists spend their days searching for life elsewhere in the solar system, and among them is NASA astrobiologist Chris McKay. McKay has been a part of the teams that sent the Curiosity rover to Mars and the Cassini orbiter to Saturn. Turns out one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus, might be a promising candidate for life on another world. From time to time, ice volcanoes on Enceladus will spew material out into space, and the Cassini satellite has detected organic molecules in one of those plumes. Producer Miles Treyer recently sat down with Chris McKay to discuss the origins of life, his hope for finding life on Mars or Enceladus, and what he's learned in his quest to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? Here's their conversation. So I actually wanted to start asking, did you have any sort of science fiction influences early in your career that helped get you interested in in astrobiology? I did. When I was first getting interested in science, 
uh, was about the time Star Trek was coming out. And that had a big influence on me in, in that, in two ways. One is it uh, showed a positive future for a world in which we embrace science and technology. And people kind of take that for granted now, but back in the 70s, it wasn't clear that we were going to embrace technology and science. It, well, that was a time of uh, the Cold War and mutually assured dis destruction and Agent Orange in Vietnam, and it was a, there was a real uh, dark time for thinking about a future in science and technology. And Star Trek held out the promise that we could uh, overcome those issues and problems and still emerge in a positive, humane, uh, uh, constructive way. And I thought that was, that was a, a, an important vision for me. The second part was I really liked the idea of going out and searching for new life and new civilization. What a quest. What a job description. Uh, so I wanted a tricorder, and I wanted to do that too. Which and is your job description which, now. In a sense, <laughs> is my job description, is to go seek out life on other worlds. My interest in Mars or the outer solar system is to search for life. I want to find examples of life beyond the Earth and ask the question, is that life different from life on Earth? Well, so far, obviously, we haven't discovered life on Mars or in the outer solar system in the oceans of Europa or in the oceans of Enceladus. So we learn how to ask the questions and how to do this on Earth. So we go to places on Earth that we think could teach us lessons about how to search for life on Mars and what to expect and what kind of tools to bring and places to test our tools. And the, the places that I think are the best for this are the very, very dry places like the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is the driest desert on Earth by a long shot, or the cold deserts of Antarctica, the so-called dry valleys, and in particular the high elevations in the dry valleys, really cold, really dry. So we go to places like that and study them as analogs for life on Mars. Uh, and for the outer solar system, where we have oceans covered in ice, uh, good analogs, or the best analogs, are ice-covered water bodies in the Antarctic, uh, under glacial ice, or under pl polar plateau ice, or under lake ice. And so I spend a lot of my time in cold, minus 20 degree tents, sleeping on rocks, thinking, well, this is what it'll be like on Mars uh, for some future astronaut. I want to take a half step back and just talk about, again, the sort of idea of looking for life on other planets. And my understanding, um, which may not be right, but my understanding is that looking for life on other planets is because we have a data set of one on Earth. We have a lot of species, but they all came from maybe one origin point. And you can't get a trend from one point. So we're kind of looking for... We need more examples out there to really understand the chemistry and the biology of life. Is that right? Yeah. A, a, a good way to think about life is we have only one example of it here on Earth. And there's a fundamental biochemical unity to all life on Earth. And that indicates that it all traces back to a common ancestor. So we really only have one example of life. This may come as a surprise to people when they look out and they see trees and animals and bacteria and E. coli in your stomach that these are all related. They're all cousins. Uh, it's not just the brotherhood of humans, but it's the brotherhood of all life on Earth. And that's a profound idea in science, but it's also a limiting idea for astrobiology because when you only have one example, you can't really make much understanding from just that one example. We really want to find another example of life. And so that, to me, is the essential search uh, of astrobiology is to find another example. But we could also take the story of life on Earth 
and think, what are the big steps in the story of life on Earth? And I would say fundamentally there's been three. Um, one is the origin of life. Uh, somehow life got started. We know that that's true because we have life on Earth. Then the second big event in the history of life was the development of multicellular complex life, going from simple, well, not really simple, but bacteria, which are metabolically complex but morphologically quite simple, to things like plants and animals, which are metabolically simple but morphologically complex. That was a major transition, a big step that occurred actually fairly recently in the history of the Earth. Most of the history of the Earth was spent in this microbial stage. And then the third big step in the story of life is the development of intelligence, the way humans express it, the ability to build radio telescopes, to build technology that can change the planet. Uh, this goes to the theme of these lectures, the Anthropocene. It's that third step that presaged the Anthropocene. And in a sense, what astrobiology asks, and I'm interested in asking, is do, did these three steps occur anywhere else? How far did life get? Are there worlds in which life only got to the first step, origin of life? Are there worlds where life got to the first and second step, complex life, maybe plants and animals? And are there worlds where life got all the way to technologically capable intelligence. And so my particular focus has been on searching for that first step in our own solar system. And maybe on Mars or Enceladus, life may have gone to that second step, the development of complex things that we would recognize as simple animals or plants. That would be very interesting. So I want to actually go to the origin of life. I've followed it as a as a geologist interested more in sort of geological boundaries and things of that nature what is the best working theory today for where life came from on earth i mean mid-ocean vents do we have a, a theory along those lines I, I would say that there's two competing paradigms for the origin of life on earth and there are a lot of theories within them but the two competing paradigms is one life started here on this planet uh, that's often been most people's default assumption. Oh, life's here. It must have started here. But the other paradigm is that life came here from somewhere else, that it was spread by meteorites or spread by comet dust. And that's often uh, dismissed as, quote, unscientific, but it's not. It may be how nature works, that life may spread by spores being transported through space. Uh, and the more we learn about space, organics in space, meteorites moving between planets, and comets, the more that theory becomes, or that paradigm becomes plausible. So I wouldn't dismiss that. But most scientists are, tend to focus on the idea that life started on Earth. And our leading candidate is that life started in a hot vent under the ocean. Not a really hot vent, not a black smoker, those are too hot, but these so-called cool vents. And the, the, favorite, the favorite example is an event named the Lost City event that was discovered in 2005 by Deborah Kelly and her team at the University of Washington. And there's a lot now that's been published on that and web pages and so on. That is probably our best guess right now as to where life gets started on Earth, if it got indeed got started on Earth. But I want to emphasize that we don't have a consensus that that's correct, and we certainly don't have any proof that it's correct, and we certainly haven't been able to reproduce it in the laboratory, although folks are trying uh, on, all, on all those fronts. There's an extreme environments lab here at Ames, right, that does a lot of that There's work? There's folks here at Ames that? working yeah. on it. There's folks here at Ames working on it, but probably the most high-fidelity simulation of this sort of so-called alkaline vent 
is being done at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Uh, there's a full-scale simulation of it. They haven't been able to produce life in the vent yet, but uh, that is our working hypothesis. And when we go to other worlds, particularly Europa and Enceladus, where there are oceans with hydrothermal activity on the bottom of these oceans, that is the origin story that we're testing. If that story is correct, that life originates in these sort of alkaline, warm but not extremely hot vents, then this is what we're seeing on Enceladus. And that, that would predict that life should originated there as well, separately from Earth, and we should be seeing the stuff of that life coming out in the plume. So a mission to go sample that plume would be very exciting, and that's a mission I'm, I'm working on. In fact, this morning I was on a seemingly endless telecon discussing the engineering details of how do you fly through the plume of Enceladus, collect enough material to search for evidence of life in it. And when you say the plume of Enceladus, we're talking like the surface is ice and then it cracks open and there are these like geysers, the cryovolcanoes, is that? Exactly. There's jets of ice coming out from the south polar region of Enceladus. And we know from Cassini that these jets contain organic material. Now, Cassini did not have the tools to search for evidence of life in these jets. Uh, the jets weren't even known before Cassini, so Cassini did an enor a wonderful job of discovering the jets and flying through them and detecting organics. Now we want to fly, follow up with a mission that flies through the jets and searches for evidence of life. And on Earth, a lot of those those transitions that you're talking about, at least the big ones, you know, the formation of life and certainly multicellular life in the Cambrian explosion, those are, are planetary boundaries. You can they're the, the golden spike driven into the rock. Exactly. You know, when we look at the the layers of, of rock on Mars, or when we look at a place like Enceladus. Does that help inform the sort of mission planning? This gets to the how. You know, how is it that you go and search for this stuff? Are you looking at the you know the potential rock record? This seems like an analogous part in in Martian history to when life started on Earth. Is that how are those missions put together? Like that's that? right. That's exactly the way we do it. And so, for example, the current mission to Mars that, that's operating on Mars now. Uh, the Curiosity mission. I'm a koi on that mission, and the site for that was chosen based on the logic of let's go to a place that had water very early in Mars history so that we can see, we can get access samples of sediments that were deposited billions of years ago. And that's proven to be very successful. We've learned a lot that way. Uh, the, the biggest challenge in applying this logic that we're developed on Earth to Mars is on Earth we often rely a lot on deep drilling. So to get a deep core, we bring a rig in and drill down, a scientific drilling. On Mars, we've only been able to drill a few centimeters. We, we, that technology is very hard to do without humans there to help. turns out the thing you need to drill is hands. You don't so much need brains and eyes, you need hands. And robots are not very good at the hands yet. They're good at eyes, they're good at brains, they're not very good at hands. So benevolent dictator, you get to build any sort of mission that you want, technology existing notwithstanding. You can sort of design it. What kind of a mission would you want on Mars? Let's start at Mars, and then we'll move to the other places. If, if, I, was, if, if I had lots of resources and, and a team that could develop whatever technology I asked for, what I would ask for on Mars is a deep drill that could go a kilometer down. It's the sort of thing people say, well, that's easy to get. I, you can buy one of those on Earth for just a few million dollars and get that rig out and do whatever deep drilling you want and they can do the drill, drilling in a way that's sterile and clean and the samples will be microbiologically useful. 
but do that on Mars. Then it's a lot more money, and it's a lot. It's way beyond what we can do now. But that is, I think, the the, the ultimate test to to the question: Did Mars have life, and how is it preserved in the record, and how do we understand its history on Mars? We're going to need to do that kind of deep drilling, drill down kilometer deep, picking good sites to drill. But that's going to be the technological challenge. And then thinking of you know again going back to sort of Antarctica and these dry, cold, saline places uh how would you build a mission or how are the missions being built for europa for enceladus what what is the what are the mission objectives there and how are they building these things yeah enceladus is a very interesting case because unlike any of the other worlds we already know that it has a habitable ocean because the samples coming out into space are water organics biologically available nitrogen all the key ingredients for life are there. So we know that it's coming from a place that many, many organisms on Earth would be happy to call home. So there the question is a lot more uh, subtle. And my view, I think what we need to do to really answer that question, is there life on this, is to bring a sample back to Earth. So my, if I had the same ability to, to, to engineer a mission or design a mission for Enceladus with no limits on capability or funding, I would send a... a a spacecraft through the plume, collect a lot of sample, maybe even a, a couple grams of it, which for our analysis, that's a lot of sample, and bring it back to Earth. The main challenge with that, actually, it turns out, is what you could call the last mile problem, is getting it to the surface of the Earth safely. You would not want to take a sample from a place that is very Earth-like and crash it into the Earth, because if there was organisms in it and they were alive, you've just done a very dangerous thing. And it's not at that return of a sample is controlled not by NASA, but by international treaty under the Outer Space Treaty. So we are there are rules in place on how you do that. And we haven't really figured out an answer that can bring back a sample with essentially zero chance of crashing when it reaches the Earth. Um, something we need to work on. I've, I've got some ideas on how we might do that, but uh, none of them have been approved yet by the committee that has to approve these kind of ideas. And I think these kind of safeguards are, of course, required, that we have to do that. But that would be very exciting to bring a sample back because in the laboratory on Earth, we could study it with the full range of technologies that we apply to studying life on Earth. So I, I want to expand on this idea of, of sort of contamination, for lack of a better word, because planetary protection clause, I was, I kind of laughed when I learned that this was, that this was a, a thing. The idea that, you know, spacefaring nations have agreed we're not going to contaminate other planets with bacteria and other things. When you're planning missions, if you're you're interested in looking at life and you're planning a mission, how do you balance the, I want to find this stuff with the knowledge that the act of finding it might kill it? Right, right. The, it, there's a, the planetary protection is actually written into international treaty. And so in the United States, it has the force of federal law. And it specifies that we will not do, quote, harmful contamination of other worlds or risk or risk contamination of the earth. So we are obliged by treaty and hence federal law to do that. And the way that's translated into, into practice is mostly focused on answering the question, if you get a sample, how do you know it's really from that world and not something you brought with you? But there's also a, an emerging understanding that we should also worry about 
impacting an ecosystem that's there. Suppose there is life on Mars, we just haven't found it yet. And suppose it is living in certain cryptic environments that we haven't yet discovered. If we go to Mars and knock out a few E. coli and they're just floating around, could they end up in that environment and start competing with uh, and, and damaging the natural ecosystem? You know, think rabbits in Australia, uh, very uh, cuddly, cute little organisms, but they're ecologically a disaster just by, because they do what they're programmed to do, which is reproduce. Uh, we don't want to introduce the equivalent um, of rabbits to, into ecosystems on Mars. And that, that, that awareness, what I call the ethical, environmental ethics aspect of planetary protection, is beginning to gain traction uh, compared with the purely scientific. You want your results to make sense, but you also don't want to harm any ecosystems there. So these are things that are constantly being considered, and when we design missions, we have to worry about both of them. It's a cynical point of view to take, but I think it's easy to look at sort of the search for life in, in the solar system and kind of look around and be like, yeah, we haven't discovered anything. Like, so what progress has been made? When when Viking first landed, you know, it started zapping samples and, and it realized that, oh, crap, there's this stuff on Mars that blows up and it destroys the organics. And, and okay, so that didn't work, but that's still progress. We now understand something else that's going on there. What what do you see from from coming in from Curiosity or from any of the other missions that are out there that sort of are, are similar in that in that vein of this helps us better understand where to look if not you know what yeah. what the life yeah. is yeah one of the big lesson that I that I draw from the exploration that I've been involved in on Mars and uh, and elsewhere is nature is different than we imagine you know we we sit here we being all the scientists together, and we come up with these ideas. We say, well, this is the way it's got to be. Uh, and we're, we all agree, and we're logically certain that this is the way it's got to be. And then we get out there, and it's not. It's completely different. And sometimes it's surprising in a pleasant way, and sometimes it destroys our instruments. So perchlorate on Mars is an example of the latter. We thought the salt on Mars would be like the salt on Earth, just normal sodium chloride. That's the salt you find virtually everywhere on Earth, in deserts and ocean and lakes and so on, sodium chloride. We thought for sure that would be the case on Mars, and we designed instruments based on that. We get to Mars, and finally we realize that it's not, that the salt on Mars is sodium perchlorate, which is a different chemical form, but one that decomposes when heated and has basically been destroying our instruments. Uh, it's sort of a start over, design things differently. But that's part of the learning, and it makes, and it, for me at least, it has instilled a certain uh, humility in thinking how easy it is it's going to be for us to explore the universe. We're not, it's not going to give up its secrets easily. We're going to have to earn that knowledge, and in a lot of times it's going to be the hard way that we're going to earn it. And so that we just have to be prepared for that. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson sort of famously made the point of like, you know, you take a cup, dip it in the ocean, you look at it and go, oh, there are no whales in the cup. There must not be any whales in the ocean. When you look at the solar system and even the universe more broadly, how how do you wrestle with the, the, the vastness of it and the chance that we could look for a really long time and never find anything? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's an important perspective that the universe is big. We don't understand it. When we think we understand it, we're often wrong. Uh, the only thing we know is that there's life on Earth. 
And so we should we need to uh, be open to the answers that we find. I don't I think we have to search because we have to know the answer. Knowing that there's life somewhere else and what it's like could be very important information to us. Knowing that there isn't life anywhere else and that we could search and search and never find it. We can never really nail down no, but we can get to the point where we're convinced that there's nothing much around us for a long, long time, long, long space. Then that, I think, gives us a different perspective on what life means and what role humans mean or can have in life. So we've got to know the answer, uh, whether there's life there. It's, it's sort of like you show up on a desert island. You want to know if there's anyone else there, whether the answer is yes or no, you want to know. And I think that's the case we're in here. Um, so I think we've got to search, and I think we have to in- accept that the search could very well be very hard and very long. Long over time scales that are much longer than an individual human lifespan. And going back to the beginning of the conversation a little bit, when you talked about sort of the three great moments, or the three great moments that you see in evolution, the formation of life, the evolution of complex life and then the development of intelligence. I would I would guess that you would also say that a future fourth would be the establishment of multiplanetary life, humans on Mars or, or some other creature on another planet. Am I right? Well, well, that's an interesting point of view. I wouldn't. I I haven't really thought about it. You know, science tends to look at the way the world, the universe is, and how it got there. To ask the question, what will the future be? As we were talking about earlier, sometimes we leave that to literature. Uh, but it's also a science question. You know, where, where, is, where is life going? Uh, and there it's interesting, and I think because the question is not purely a science question. It's also a question of human choices. Are we going to expand life beyond the Earth? So how what the future brings will depend on how we as humans decide we want to use our intelligence. Do we use it more in a contemplative mode, or do we use it to support a more active, uh, interactive mode? Uh, I I like the idea of an interactive mode, where the search for life and the enhancement of the richness and diversity of life in the universe becomes the goal, and intelligence is merely the tool we use to achieve that goal, where some people would say that, no, intelligence is the goal, and we'll move away from biology and instantiate intelligence into machines because they can do it faster and better. And that, that privileges intelligence and thinking per se as, as what is ultimately a value. Uh, much as I like intelligence and use it every day, I don't think that it's an end in itself. I think it's a means to an end. Do you see humans as sort of natural explorers? Is that kind of like, that's our drive, we should exactly. be explorers? I think we should be explorers and contributors. And what we should be exploring for is life, what we should be contributing to is life. And intelligence is a Swiss army knife that we use to support the exploration. Chris McKay, thank you so much for chatting. It's a real pleasure. My pleasure, Miles. Anthropocene is produced by Miles Treyer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. 
We are also on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next week.